We're going to pick up today with Lesson 8 in our current Sunday morning sermon series, Lesson Series, entitled Revolution, Christ Over Culture. This is an in-depth analysis of the New Testament narrative of the book of Acts. And if you remember in some of our previous lessons, and, and listen, if you weren't here for any of the previous lessons, or maybe just a few, they're all available on YouTube, on SoundCloud, through our smartphone app. There are many different opportunities and avenues that you can access those. But if you remember, one of the most pivotal things that we have uh, uh, looked at foundationally to an understanding of the book of Acts is the fact that Acts was never written intentionally to stand on its own. But rather, Acts was written by the same man, Luke, who was a physician that wrote the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. And they fit together as a, as a pair. Acts is essentially a sequel to the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And we see this merely in their addressing. But when we put the two together, we see what I think is quite an incredible format. And for the sake of today's lesson, I'm going to remind you of that format. Luke writes both the gospel of Jesus according to Luke and the book of Acts specifically to an individual named Theophilus. There's great debate amongst the theological world whether or not Theophilus was actually a, a, an, an individual, where it, whether he was actually a specific individual, or perhaps this was just a term of endearment that Luke would use to describe the church. You see, the name Theophilus literally translate the, translates the beloved of God. And the opening, the introductory to the gospel of Jesus according to Luke, specifically addresses this individual, be it literal or figurative by the name of Theophilus. We turn over to the book of Acts and we see the same exact introduction writing to this specific individual, be it literal or figurative, whose name was Theophilus. And they connect the two together because Luke actually uh, prefaces his story of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit as it is better deemed. He, he specifically prefaces it with referencing the former presentation or the former treaty and how the two of those presentations, the gospel of Jesus and the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, fit together like a glove. Now, if you remember, one of the foundational keys to understanding the book of Acts that we've looked at is the fact that they embody a, a picture similar to an hourglass when Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are paired together. Follow me for a moment. So Luke's gospel story opens up with a very broad spectrum, right? It opens up with a decree that comes out from Caesar Augustus, a Roman ruler, that all the known world should be taxed. All the Roman world should be taxed. And so Luke begins with this really, really broad spectrum in, uh, in dealing with the, uh, the, the world from a Roman perspective. But by the time we get to the end of Luke's gospel, we end on a small hill just outside the city gate gates of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is being crucified. So we begin with this and we begin with, with, with what you could possibly call a, a perspective of the entire known world and then by the time it wraps up and it ends, we're specifically looking at one small location and one individual whose name is Jesus and one event which was his crucifixion. Now we fast forward to the sequel, the book of Acts, right? And guess how it begins? It's introduced with a few people 
followers of Jesus who are living in Jerusalem, and they've been, con- they've been uh, commanded, if you will, they've been instructed, perhaps is a better term, to stay in Jerusalem from Jesus until they receive the promise of the Father. And Acts is the polar opposite. We put the two together, and they begin to form an hourglass because Acts begins with a, with, with a zoomed-in perspective, if you will, of just a few people in a small city of Jerusalem, and then by the time we wrap up the book of Acts, we see that Paul is in Rome, and once again we see the world from a wide, broad Roman perspective, and he's able there to preach the gospel. Now with that in mind, we see that Luke mirrors this same uh, uh, adjusting adjustment of focus, if you will, multiple times throughout his presentation in the book of Acts. And we're going to see that yet again today. We're going to see that, yes, we look at things from a broad perspective, and we're going to pick up with the 17th verse of the 5th chapter, and we're going to, we just have looked at everything from a broad perspective as far as the church is concerned, but we're going to get really specific and we're going to look at one specific instance that involved just a few certain individuals but affected the lives of many. Now with that in mind, here's something else we're going to see in today's lesson. We've seen the repetitious pattern of hills and valleys for the church, ups and downs. So far, the first five chapters or four and a half chapters really that we've read of the book of Acts have been an absolute spiritual and emotional roller coaster. Now we've seen for the most part that the, that the body of Christ, the church, has been committed, they've been faithful, they've been, uh, uh, they've been dedicated throughout all of these ups and downs and everything in between. And isn't it wonderful that we also find consolation that God has never left them nor forsaken them. If there's anything I want you to hear that's going to be uh, resounded multiple times throughout today's lesson is the fact that Jesus had given these men and women a promise and he's given us the same promise we find it in Matthew chapter 28 he said I am with you until the end of the world I believe that was one of the motive the greatest motivating factors of the early church was the 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 adoption the ideology of that perception that Jesus was with them wherever they went. We turn the page to chapter 5, verse 17 of the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to pick up with a story, with those things in mind, we're going to pick up with a story that is of rather interesting nature. This story plays out like a screenplay or like a movie. So maybe kick back and get you some popcorn if you can think about some popcorn. And, and, and we're going to present this story like the screenplay that I believe Luke is kind of writing it in. It commences, it begins with a conversation between some religious leaders, specifically the high priest and his, uh, his, his closest people, and then a few other folks who are Jewish religious leaders as well. Now here's the interesting thing about this story. Not only does it convene, not only does it uh, commence with, with that conversation between those group of people, and it kind of starts here, and then it goes way down here, and we're going to find the believers in a, in a really tough, difficult spot, probably more so than many of us have ever been in, but then it ends on a really good high note, and guess what it ends with? It resolves with a conversation of the like between those same individuals, but this incredible resolution does not stand on its own, but I want you to notice specifically this morning the patient reaction of the followers of Jesus. Those who were placed on trial, those who were being persecuted, and I know in hindsight, having known and understood and read the book of Acts, we know that persecution is a theme, a constant repetitive theme throughout the narrative of Acts, but at this point in time, We're going to read only what is only at this point. 
point in time, the second instance or occurrence of persecution towards the church. So this was a brand new experience for them. This was a brand new event, if you will. But yet their reaction is so patient, it's so Christ-like, and it so applies to my life and to your life this morning. We're going to pick up with Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through verse 21. We're going to pick up on the heels of the incredible unity that the church had experienced after that uh, tragic event surrounding Ananias and Sapphira, their dishonesty to the Holy Spirit, but how that this put about the uh, a sense of awe amongst the church. And let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to see how things would quickly change from where they were in the 16th verse. The scripture says here, chapter 5, verse 17 in the book of Acts, but the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, they is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. This jealousy is directed towards those who are following Christ. Now keep in mind, before we proceed to the next verse, keep in mind at this point in time, Christianity was still perceived as a sect of Judaism. So it was just like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, which were the four major denominations, if you will, of Judaism in the first century. And so these people who were following this man named Jesus, who had been crucified, were simply deemed as just another sect of Judaism. But all the other religious leaders are really struggling with some jealousy towards them, verse 17 presents to us. Verse 18 says, they're so jealous that they laid their hands on the apostles and they placed them in a public jail. But during the night, get this, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of that prison and took them out and said to them, now this is incredible, he said, go and stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Keep the word life in your mind. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and they began to teach the gospel of Jesus. For time's sake this morning, I won't read the seceding story, but it's quite incredible. So I want to just walk you through it. If you keep in mind, these men have been in prison. Now this is the second time they've been placed in jail because of their belief in Jesus and the proclamation thereof. If you remember the first time was in Acts chapter 4, and we saw there that persecution was really not yet, uh, not yet perceived to the extent that it would be later on in the book of Acts. And such is the case here in the fifth chapter. I don't think that the church had really been perceived as a threat to Judaism and a threat to the outside world like it later would be in the book of Acts. And here's why. Because at this point, along with the first occurrence of persecution in chapter 4, at this point in time, basically the religious leaders are throwing these men and women in jail and they're just saying, leave them there and now they're locked up and they can shut up and we don't have to hear from them and everything's going to be okay. Whereas later on, these men and women are dealt with in a direct, harsh manner through persecution. So if you will get this idea in your mind, these men have been thrown in jail, and in the middle of the night, God sends an angel from heaven, and this angel comes and picks the pocket of the prison guard, and he walks up to the door, and he unlocks the prison door, and he lets the men out, and they walk out, and the guard's fast asleep, or who knows where he's at, and the angel of the Lord is polite enough, he shuts the door, locks them back, the guys are gone, and he speaks to them, and keep this in mind, this is what we'll resolve today's lesson on later on, he speaks to them specific words of instruction. He said, I want you to go and to speak all the words of this life 
in the temple. But wait a minute. The temple was the very place where they got in trouble. That was the very place where they were ridiculed and persecuted and thrown out and then thrown into jail. And yet the angel of the Lord says, I'm going to set you free so you can go back to the same place and do the same thing that got you in here anyway. But nonetheless, we find that they were obedient. Dawn rises the next morning and the Jewish religious leaders, the high priest and the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the people who would have gathered around him. You see, these people didn't like one another, but they disliked the same thing. And that was what we call the church, what we call Christianity. So they came together to fight against the one thing that they all didn't like, the only thing they probably would have agreed on. And so they come together and they said, bring those men. They call the prison guards. They shoot them a text. They said, bring those men here to us. We're going to try them. We're going to have a conversation with them here in the court. And so the prison guards go to get them and all of a sudden they encounter uh, a problem. The prison cell is shut up, but it's empty. There's nobody there. And so with fear, they go back and they report to the high priest and to uh, his companions. They said, here's, here's something really crazy happened. We know you threw those guys in jail last night, but they're gone. They're nowhere at all to be found. And they all begin to scratch their head. And I believe this begins to fuel and to, to, to this is a seed, if you will, that's going to grow into an extreme anger that we're going to see later on in the 33rd verse of chapter 5. They begin to get angry and they think, where are these guys at? What has happened to them and who has let them out? Here's something really crazy. Just about that same time, somebody overhears that there's people in the temple teaching and preaching that Jesus is Lord. And they said, this has got to be the same group of people. So they go tell the high priest and the high priest says, bring them here. So once again, they're apprehended. They're handcuffed, if you will. They're taken by police car escort in the back seat to the high priest. And there they face the high priest and they're faced on trial after they've not only done something perceived as wrong and perceived as worthy of being in prison, but now somehow they have escaped and the high priest and his companions do not know how. So now they're probably on trial for two things and they begin to be questioned. The high priest says, why are you doing these things? We have already warned you. Uh, obviously he didn't say this, but I'm going to say it for relation to us and our understanding. We already warned you back in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts to no longer speak or teach in the name of this man Jesus. Why must you continue to do these things? And so a bold declaration is made in chapter 5 when one of the followers of Jesus at the forefront of the speech looks at the high priest and his companions and says it is better for us to obey God rather than man. Now I want you to understand that this was not an arrogant declaration. I didn't specify this in the first service this morning but I want to take some time and specify it for you. This was not a declaration of arrogance. The disciples of Jesus were not looking down their holier-than-thou noses on the high priest and basically saying, we're not subject to the same thing that you are subject to. But rather, this was a declaration of of a higher calling, if you will. It was these men's, uh, th th their understanding that they were not merely citizens of this earth, but as Paul would later declare in one of his writings, that they were citizens of heaven. And in today's uh, ever so troubled culture that we live in, we must be reminded that our greatest obligation, our greatest commitment, our greatest opportunity that we have in this life is to obey the eternal truth that God 
God has laid out for us. And it is more important than obedience to any individual, to any political figure, to any declaration, to any executive order, or to any law. And we, oh, if we could get a hold of that same perception that the the followers of Christ had, that the disciples of Jesus had, that it's better for us to obey God rather than man. But can you imagine, if you will, as we move forward with the story, can you imagine the tone that would have been set in that conversation when those disciples looked at the high priest and said, it's better for us to listen to God than to listen to you. Here's one of the most powerful men in all Jewish culture, and they make that declaration, and and man, things are really about to get heated. And so here's what happens. The high priest and all of his companions, they just say... uh, we don't even know what to say. We're so angry. And verse 33 in chapter 5 tells us that they were so convicted and their conviction moved them to anger. And can't we sometimes tragically allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to cause us to be angry at the pastor or the teacher or whoever's declaring God's word to us? And that is a very, very unfortunate thing. But they allowed the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make them angry. And they were so angry. Luke, Luke specifies in verse 33 of chapter 5. They were so angry that they wanted to kill these men. They began to contemplate their conviction, led them to contemplate a murder of these guys. They said, we're going to take their very lives. We're going to separate their their heads from their bodies. We're going to make sure that we don't have to deal with these people anymore. And then as the screenplay continues, Luke allows the entrance of a key character, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel takes the proverbial center of the stage, if you will, and he begins to speak to this crowd of outraged, livid, furious Jewish religious leaders. Let me tell you who Gamaliel was. Gamaliel is respected throughout history and probably would have been respected, especially right here at this moment in time in the first century, as one of the greatest theologians of the Jewish religion. If you studied history a lot, you know that Gamaliel is the grandson of Hillel. And Gamaliel, we find out later on in the book of Acts, was the greatest theologian of, of, of the Jewish time. And he is the man who instructed the apostle Paul before his conversion. So we believe this is where Paul gained so much of his, uh, of his spiritual intellectualism, if you will. But Gamaliel walks to the forefront of the story. And here's the crazy thing about Gamaliel. He's not necessarily labeled as a believer. Now, there's some debate amongst the theological world that possibly Gamaliel could have been one of those secret followers of Jesus, like Joseph of Arimathea. At the end of the Gospels, we read about Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a follower of Jesus, but the scripture says that he was a follower of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews. And I quote those words exactly. It was Joseph of Arimathea who craved and went for the body of Jesus to give it its proper proper burial after his death, after his crucifixion. But he was one of those secret followers of Jesus. And the way that that's presented for us gives us the ideology that there are other people who were like that, Jewish men of renown who secretly followed Jesus. And some think that this was the case with Gamaliel, but I don't necessarily know if we can adopt that because in Josephus's historical works, we see that Gamaliel is not presented in that light, but rather as strictly a Jewish teacher and a Jewish theologian. But regardless, nonetheless, Gamaliel steps to the forefront of this story, to the forefront of this screenplay 
way, if you will, and he begins to speak some words of wisdom. Whether he embraced Jesus, the Christ, as the Son of living, the living God or not, his words here were straight from the throne of heaven. Gamaliel actually looks at these men who are filled with anger and they're filled with contempt and they're just they're ready to kill these followers of Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, guys, if I may paraphrase, he says, guys, calm down. Can I remind you that just a few weeks ago, just a few months ago, just a little while ago, there was this guy who rose up and said he was the Messiah. Not a reference to Jesus, but to somebody else. And don't you remember how that dozens of people began to follow him? And all of a sudden he had a big crowd and we were all worried about this guy. We thought he was a threat to us. We thought he was going to overthrow Judaism. But then all of a sudden he died and his followers just scattered like nothing we've ever seen. And then don't you remember that a little while later somebody else rose up and essentially did the same thing. And then all of a sudden he disappeared and all of his followers disappeared. Same story. Guys, can you get this, Gamaliel says. If those men could not do this on their own, then certainly these men cannot do this on their own own. So let us resolve upon this ideology that if the work these men are doing is from God, we cannot stand against it. But if it is not from God, then no one can make it stand on its own. And all of these men all of a sudden under the great wisdom and declaration the, 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 the authority, if you will, of, of Gamaliel, they just kind of sit there and their minds are calmed and a peace kind of takes over the room. And God has used not the mouthpiece of his followers, but rather the mouthpiece piece of a man who had not yet embraced the fact that Jesus was Lord. Don't we know that God can use anything? Aren't we reminded through the story of Balaam's donkey when God uses not Balaam but rather the donkey to open up his mouth and declare the truth when no one else would? It's not just the fact that these you see what's happening here is these disciples are now having an experience where their perception of God, the borders thereof are being widened. If you remember back in that previous account of, uh, of, of persecution in Acts chapter 4, we saw that there they embraced that powerful ideology that God who was with them in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when they had this incredible spiritual experience was also with them in chapter 4 in the courtroom. The God of the upper room is God of the courtroom and he is with you no matter what. And we find great comfort and great consolation in that same fact, in that same truth that he's with me when life is good and he's with me when life is just not going good at all. But now the parameters of their understanding of God would be stretched even further because it's not that God came and sent an angel to them in the prison and delivered them from the prison and said, hey, you're out of here. I've been with you. Now go hide and uh, stay safe somewhere. That's not at all what happened. But rather, the angel of the Lord says, go to the temple and proclaim all of the words of this life. But wait a minute. Last time this happened, God, you rescued us and we just went on and everything was okay. And now you're going you're to tell us to go back and do the same thing that got us thrown in this jail yet again. You see, God was saying, I want to broaden your perspective of who I am. I want you to have a fuller understanding of my character. I want you to grow in your knowledge of of my grace and my mercy and my character and every single thing that I am. 
You see, this experience would teach them the lesson that not only was God with them in the, in the peaks of life and with them in the valleys of life, but that God could lead them through all of these things and use each of these opportunities as a platform upon which they may declare the eternal hope and truth of the gospel. You see, the unity that we saw the church in at the end of chapter, or at the middle of chapter 5, before we begin reading together today, that was a platform upon which they declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when they were thrown in the jail and the angel of the Lord came to rescue them, the jail cell had became a platform upon which they may declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they're set free and the angel of the Lord says, I want you to go to the temple and declare who God is. Declare all the words of this life. So all of a sudden, their freedom becomes a platform upon which they may declare the gospel of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? And then they're brought back to the high priest and to all of his comrades. And there in the courtroom, once again, they're given a platform to declare the eternal truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this what David described for us in Psalm chapter 23? Isn't this the omnipresent nature of God that he describes to us? That when we follow him, Psalm chapter 23, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I follow Him and He gives me what I need. I'm not longing, I'm not wanting, I'm not in lack. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In other words, He gives me all these things I need. He restores my soul. But so far, the picture, the ideology of the servant is behind the leader. I follow Him because He is my shepherd. He is behind me. But here's what we can't understand about God. Here's what we can't perceive about God is he's not just in front of us. He's everywhere. David said it like this. Where can I go from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the the Hebrew word for the grave, then you're there as well. Everywhere I go, you're there. And David says in Psalm 23, you're my shepherd. I follow you and you lead me to good places and to good things and, and you take care of me and you restore my soul. But he wraps it up with the final statement of the 23rd Psalm in verse 6. And he says, but I look behind me. And it's not the perception that God is in front of me and I'm following him. And I'm trying to run from everything that's bad in my past. And I'm trying to escape from all of my enemies. That's not David's perception of God at all. But rather he says, I'm following him as my shepherd. He's leading me to good places. But I turn around and I see goodness and mercy and loving kindness chasing me down. Verse 6, Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the presence of God forever. There is no place I could go that he is not there and there's no place that I am not that he is not there. He is omnipresent. He is good everywhere and this is the perception of God that we learn when God carries us through times and seasons of difficulty but yet we remain faithful and committed to proclaiming the truth of his gospel. He is everywhere. David understood this, just as the early church understood this. And such was the end result. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42. Gamaliel's instruction has ceased, and he's he's now no longer on the center of the stage of the screenplay, if you will. And he takes a seat, and then Luke begins to shine the spotlight on those disciples, the same ones who were thrown in prison for proclaiming the gospel, the same ones to whom the angel of the Lord set free and said, I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to declare all the words of this truth. Now this is how it ends. 
chapter 5, verse 41 and 42. So they went their way from the presence of the council of the high priest, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they continued, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. But hadn't they been persecuted? Yes. Hadn't they been laughed to scorn? Hadn't they been become outcasts of religious society? Yes, they had. Didn't they face the threat of further imprisonment? Yes, as a matter of fact, the majority of the leading characters of Acts would soon give their lives willingly in martyrdom for the gospel of Jesus. But yet they continued to teach from house to house. They kept right on teaching that Jesus was the Christ. What is that great motivation? What is really happening here? You see, God never anywhere, and, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but I've, I've committed the last 20 years of my life to study this book and to know its author. From Bible college to seminary and studying every Sunday and through the week to teach you all and to learn myself. I have found nowhere from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 where God ever called His people to go hide out and not come out until things were safe. God does not call the church to a bunker. God does not call the church to a safe place and says, when everything blows over, you can come out. But rather, God calls His people to the battlefield, to the front lines of the battlefield, just as our worship leader presented to us earlier with the story of Jehoshaphat. That is God's calling to us. And you say, Pastor, it looks so scary. Pastor, what about this virus? What about this disease? What about the potential? Are you not worried? Jesus said upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is the promise that we have. Are you not worried about yourself? Are you not worried about your family, your children, your special needs daughter? My perception on this instance, if I catch corona from one of you all, uh, if I catch COVID from one of you all from preaching the gospel on Sunday morning and my life, my time, on this earth ends, then so be it. Thank God. What better way to go out than meeting with my brothers and sisters and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Pastor, I'm scared. Wear a mask. Wear gloves. Wear a hazmat suit. Whatever you have to do. But God did not call us to a bunker to hide out. He has called us to the front lines of a battlefield to grab a megaphone and declare that there is hope to this hopeless world. And that hope is found only in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Life is what the followers of Jesus were instructed by the angel to declare. And I love how the angel does not say, I want you to declare political truths or opinions. And the angel does not say, I want you to declare denominational doctrines. He said, I want you to declare life. In the Greek, it's the word zoe. We translate it life. It means so much more than the English word that we use for life and our perception thereof. When we hear the word of life, perhaps we think, when we hear the word life, perhaps we think of a person's tenure, an individual's time here on this earth, the the beginning at their birth and the end at their death. That's not what zoe means. 
Zoe was understood by uh, anyone in the first century who understood and spoke classic Greek as a native language. Zoe was a reference not necessarily to one's tenure on this earth, but rather to the power that would incite life and sustain life. So here's the, here's the true definition, if you will. Zoe was the differentiator between a corpse and a walking individual. It was that force that incited and sustained life, that gave life. And when we look at this in a spiritual sense, it's like what James says in chapter 1, of his own will he begot us through the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits for his glory. Zoe is that revolutionary, personal revolutionary experience that has brought to life the believer who was formerly dead in their trespasses and their sins. And the angel says, that's what I want you to declare. I want you to declare the fact that Jesus is hope, that he has resurrected you from a spiritual grave, and this is the only hope that this world has. May the church embrace the same ideology this morning. And hope that is not found on a political ticket, in a political party, or within a political candidate's presentation. Hope that is not found within this great nation that we live on, or anything that live in, or anything that it offers. But hope that is found literally only through the Lord Jesus. Hope. It doesn't have to be worked for. Hope that you don't have to strive for. But hope that says, for whosoever will call. On the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you stand as we pray together this morning? Father, we are so thankful.